0: All right, the message that we'll be looking at this evening is uh, leadership and laity and roles in church decision-making. And uh, my voice is kind of weak this afternoon for some reason. I'll try to speak up so you can hear me. I've divided the message into two parts, the first being the ministry ministry some uh, characteristics about the leadership, and then part two uh, on decision-making. <clears throat> I'd like to look at seven kind of general characteristics of leadership. Number one, that ministers are called of God. There's a process by which God, through a serious and praying church, calls men to leadership. And it's a sober and serious business. The church prays and considers qualifications. It considers men and it makes choices. And uh, if needed, a lot is used. And a brother is called to this work of being a minister. That's number one. Number two, ministers are charged. That's not a credit card, but it is a, a, a duty that is laid upon them of God and the church when they are ordained. The term charge is used. Uh, Paul used that in reference to Timothy, charged to gu- to guard, to guide, and to feed the flock, the congregation. And it is a great responsibility that God lays on men. Upon this confession and these promises that you have made before God and these witnesses, I charge and ordain you in the name of Jesus Christ and his church. And then it lists off a number of activities that the minister is to be involved with that are drawn from Scripture. And then it closes this way. Likewise, give heed to yourself, walk circumspectly, read the word, meditate on its precious precepts, pray without ceasing, And in all things seek to be a faithful laborer in the Lord's kingdom. Continue in these things, for in so doing you will save both yourself and those that hear you. Similar to what Paul wrote to Timothy. So that's number two. The ministers are given a charge. Number three. Ministers are human. That doesn't surprise you. You've lived with us and worked with us and you know this, we are humans. Ministers have personalities. Some are gregarious and talkative and outgoing. Others are more quiet-natured and reserved. Some tend to be blunt and outspoken. Some are more soft-spoken. Some are more driven and intense and others are more laid back. They have character strengths and weaknesses, a lot of raw material for the Holy Spirit to sanctify and work on. They live with and wrestle with their humanity just like anyone else. They have to struggle against all the temptations that are common to man. just like anyone else. They deal with life's stresses. They need to make a living, pay bills. They get sick. They have accidents. They're susceptible to discouragement, to frustration, to anger, to pride, to taking offense. They may not always do as well in leadership as they intend. They have bad days. They make mistakes. They fall short. They sin. They need forgiveness of God and of their brothers, of men. They are not spared from the attacks and snares of the devil. They're not given a measure of deliverance beyond that of their brothers and sisters. And they can even lose out and turn apostate. That happened in the early church. Paul wrote to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Alexander who suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. And he also mentions in 2 Timothy, that was in First, about Hymenaeus and Philetus who have strayed concerning the truth. And if this was the same Hymenaeus, He was uh, influential in a bad way. Ministers are human. They need God's grace just like everyone else. Ministers are brothers. Although they have a different role, they're not to be regarded as Lord's of some higher status, Jesus said, "But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your Father, he who is in heaven, and do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher the Christ, but he who but he who is greatest among you." shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted teaching of Jesus in Colossians the first couple of verses of chapter 1 the greeting goes this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, all brethren together. And a congregation uh, has obligations to brothers who are ministers just as they do to, to other brothers. So when Hebrews, in Hebrews it says in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I would understand that to be, uh, that that would be, that would apply just as much to a minister brother as any other brother. That we have an obligation to watch out for each other and to encourage and exhort one another. So later in, the, in Hebrews, he said, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's not just for preachers. And it's, just, it's not just for uh, the sisters in the ladies Sunday school class. It's for brothers to ministers and ministers to brothers and wherever it is needed and God leads let us, all of us, as a, as a body together, let us consider, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. A leader is not of more worth or closer to God than anyone else. No more than a husband is of more worth or value than his wife. But it's God's order of authority. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, we have the divine order, God the Father and Christ and man and woman, the way Paul outlines it there. And God the Father is not more God than God the Son. They are equally divine. There are different roles. And the same with man and woman. Same value, same worth, And access to God, but different roles. And the same with leaders and non-ordained. Same value, worth, and access to God. Different roles. Ministers are brothers. Number five, ministers are leaders. Ministers are managers. They're to be in charge Is what we see in the scripture. They are leaders of the church. So in 1 Timothy, there are numerous scriptures that speak to this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Elders who rule well. Another verse uses that term and shows the meaning uh, where Jesus used it in Luke 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household? Uh, The New English translation says it this way, whom the master puts in charge of his household servants. In Romans 12, Verse 8, it uh, speaks of God's blessing and the uh, encouraging people of various gifts to use them uh, like he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. Another translation says, if it is leadership, he must do so with diligence. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly. In love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. The New American Standard says, and have charge over you. Uh, New English translation, and preside over you in the Lord. And that is an important qualifier, in the Lord. Uh, In Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. And in the qualifications for a minister in 1 Timothy 3, uh, the candidate is to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? The New English translation says he must manage his own household well. I think noticing the similarities between church structure and order and the family order and structure can be helpful. In both, God has designed different roles for different members of the family. A leader to be in charge. In the family, it's the husband and father who is the leader, and the wife is a helper. She submits to his leadership, as do children. There are certainly differences between the family and the church. But there is a a strong link, I feel. And there's a reason why one of the qualifications for a minister is how he leads his family. That's to be looked at. So these scriptures among others, teach that the ministry are to have oversight, to manage, to be in charge, to lead out. And that does not mean that they do everything or that they decide everything. They don't. But they are responsible. They are in charge. Number six, ministers are shepherds. God called them to be shepherds. How are they to lead? As servant leaders, as shepherds, not as despots, not as lords, but as servants, as shepherds to the flock. Jesus taught in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, The disciples were concerned about who was the greatest. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul, in Acts 20, he was headed toward Jerusalem. And he made a little detour to... uh, He wanted to make contact with the leaders from Ephesus. And when he got to Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. And in verse 18 of uh, chapter 20, it says, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, In what manner I always lived among you. And in verse 28, he encourages them, challenges them. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd, a servant. Peter had a burden laid on his heart by God. And he wrote this in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. The elders who are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. That's a verb shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And in John 10, where he talks about, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. So bad leaders, bad shepherds, are hirelings. Selfish leaders are hirelings. They're looking out for themselves with little regard or little care for the sheep. We had an example of that in last Sunday's Sunday school lesson. Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence. And he was, um, he used malicious words and he forbade those who wanted to, he forbade John and he forbade those who wanted to fellowship with those brethren from John, putting them out of the church. He was a, I would say, he was a hireling. In contrast, there was another character there, Demetrius, who has a good testimony from all. I don't know if he was a leader or not, or whether Gaius was a leader, the one at the named at the beginning, greeted at the beginning of third John. But Diotrephes was not a good leader. And I've been impressed with Paul, Paul's leadership. And I think he kind of encapsulates his, his leadership in First Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 6, where he says to them, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And then just a few uh, verses later, he says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged, Every one of you, as a father, does his own children. So he was gentle among them when he was there in Thessalonica. He was gentle among them as a nursing mother cherishes her own children and would uh, would love them and even be willing to die for them. And I believe any of our moms would have that kind of care for their children. And, and just uh, describing the, the gentle, nurturing quality of Paul's ministry. And then at the same time, he says, I'm like a father to his children, I think, a good father, and giving leadership and direction and even being firm if necessary as, as a leader for the good of his children. Uh, characteristics of a mother and a father that Paul portrayed. But a servant leader, a good shepherd, a true shepherd, that's the kind of leader that a minister should be. And then number seven, ministers are accountable. First, they're accountable to the brotherhood. Well, that's the first I'll mention. They're accountable to the brotherhood. The minister is a brother called from the brotherhood and is accountable to the brotherhood. The vows of ordination are to God and to the church. And he promised to submit to the councils of the church. He needs the support, the encouragement, and even the correction of the brotherhood. There's some direction given in Scripture for how this should be handled if a minister is out of line, out of order. But the ordination does not bring a minister some kind of diplomatic immunity from correction. He may receive brotherly admonition from a fellow minister. He may receive admonition from a brother. I've experienced that and sometimes it wasn't pleasant but it can be very profitable there are many ways that a minister can make mistakes we already referred to his being human he can be wrong he can be uninformed uh, not adequately informed and he can learn from others. It may be how he is or isn't doing his duties. He has multiple roles. He is to feed the flock. He'll give an account for that. He is to feed his family. If he doesn't, he's worse than an infidel. And he is to keep his children in order, his speaking of his children at home, his, his uh, children in, under his roof. Sometimes it's a struggle to juggle all these callings and needs, family time, work time, study time, service time, personal time, and maybe he'll, can, he can get his priorities out of balance. Apollos was off base on some doctrinal points, and he learned from a couple of lay people a kind um, brother and sister, Aquila and Priscilla, who had Apollos and the gospel at heart, and they took him aside and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly, it says. Paul confronted Peter once, who for fear of Jewish Christians wasn't being consistent in his relation to the Gentiles, and he said to Peter, Peter, you're wrong, Peter. And we already mentioned diatrophies, and John said he was going to deal with that when he got, got there to that community, wherever that was. But ministers are accountable to the church. More seriously, and maybe first of all, they're accountable to God. We're, all of us are accountable to God. But, um, and we know how the scripture says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. But there's an accountability on top of that for those with responsibility. Uh, in James 3, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, I don't know that there he's referring specifically to ministers. Uh, ministers are called to teach, but it is a, an additional, it is a responsibility that a teacher is given. And we notice the uh, verse in Hebrews thirteen seventeen: obey them that have the rule over you and submit, for, submit to them. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, and that is account to God, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive, this is after his... his, uh, exhortation to be good shepherds and when the chief shepherd shall appear ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away if you do these things that we read earlier and the implication is that the chief shepherd will be weighing how well and how faithfully the work is done So, a minister is accountable to God for his teaching, for his life and example, and for how he handled his responsibilities. And I have read the letters to the churches, to the angels of the churches in uh, Revelation. And numerous times, but um, some some scholars feel that the angels of the churches are the leaders of the churches, the messengers of the churches, the leaders. And it would seem to be, the letters would seem to be addressing the leaders and uh, holding them accountable is one way that those letters can be read, and I have read those letters soberly, reflecting on them that way. I won't insist that that's what its meaning there, but ministers are accountable for their for this work. It is a serious calling. And it comes with accountability. So I wanted to review those things um, because when you talk about church and and making decisions, leaders are always a piece of that. Now the second part they wanted to look at, we want to look at is church, the church in decision making. I've thought already of the children of Israel when they left Egypt. They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the cloud lifted and moved forward, they broke camp and followed. And when the cloud stopped, Israel stopped. And they stayed parked until the cloud lifted again. They did not need GPSs. Direction from God, directly from God. But it doesn't work that way in the church. But God does work. God does guide. He works through people, through leaders, through brothers and sisters in the church. Churches don't always, don't approach these things in the same way. There's a wide Variation in how churches make decisions. I think there are two dangerous ditches. One of those ditches is doing church as a democracy where leaders are only moderators, they moderate discussion and count votes. And the voice and the vote of the congregation is the authority that directs and sets the direction of the church. I don't see the New Testament giving any basis for such an approach. If a church is carnal, that church will surely drift where leaders are carnal, can cause drift in the church too. Aaron of Israel was a leader who wanted to please the people. And he caved to what would please them instead of doing what was right. And we know the story how he made a calf and led them in worshiping it. I wonder what kind of leaders were in the church at Pergamos in Revelation that tolerated the doctrines of Balaam And that of the Nicolaitans. And what kind of church structure did they have in Thyatira where the prophetess Jezebel was tolerated? We don't know. I believe it is true that a spiritual congregation can help lift and encourage and develop an immature and growing leader. But doing church as a democracy, I believe, is, a, is one dangerous ditch. And there is another one. And that is where there is an authoritarian regime and the leader rules as a despot, firm and fierce and laying down the law, just fleshly controlled an abuse of authority. Maybe there's pride of position, the diatrophies kind of syndrome. Solomon's son, King Jeroboam, didn't listen to wise counsel, but he determined to rule harshly. I remember Big John Stosfus, many of you would remember him, telling of a newly ordained Amish bishop who said, when I have the whip, and I don't remember what the rest of the, uh, what the rest of he said, but the idea was that when he's in control, when he has the whip, it sounded pretty ominous. I had a call one time from a lady who had read a book that she had gotten from Christian Light. And she was an Amish lady. And she was in, if if, what she told me was correct, I talked to her several different times, she was in somewhat this kind of setting. And she was looking for a way out to something more spiritual that would feed her and nurture her. I felt sorry for her. I found someone else who could uh, help her that was closer to her area and maybe she could meet with or talk with. But that's another and a dangerous ditch, a bad ditch. It does not honor God or glorify God. Or bring forward his kingdom work. So, how should it work? Well, there is some width on the road, but I I have been blessed and impressed with the Jerusalem the Jerusalem conference in Acts fifteen, and we studied this. Uh, What, some months ago? I'm not sure how long it's been. But we know how there was a problem. And they came together in Jerusalem, the leaders and the elders and the church, and they discussed this thing and they came to a conclusion. And what grabbed my attention was what it says in verse 28. This, when they wrote the letter to send back to Antioch and to churches beyond, it has this, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And this, this is the part that really blessed me. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us What a wonderful place to come out in, a, in church decisions. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What is the goal in our decision making? What does God want? That's the question. What does God want? How would Christ, the head of the church, Have us choose? How would God's Spirit direct us? I have two, two points here. Number one, with what mind and heart and attitude would God have us have as we work through something? I believe that every matter, whether it's of minor importance or very serious, would come under this. That there is love and respect and submission to one another. A love for God, a love for one another. That's the mind and heart and attitude that the fruit of the Spirit in the heart of God's people together looking at an issue. And then, number two, by what method, by what process should a decision be reached? And that may vary depending on the issue. But number one, the mind and heart and attitude that is spirit-directed would always apply. So for a church to reach decisions that are good to the Holy Spirit and to the church, there needs to be spiritual people. And so there is spirit directed speaking respectfully, kindly, clearly. There is spirit directed listening, respectful, charitable. There is spirit directed processing maybe there's a better term for that but i mean think hearing processing what we've what we've heard said in our own thoughts and then spirit directed proposals offered for consideration and then spirit empowered submission true uh, christian submission doesn't just come naturally, I don't think. But it's a work of the Spirit. And I believe these elements, these these factors were in place there at Jerusalem. And the best decisions are made when a group of committed believers love God and love each other and fill their roles. So in Jerusalem, In Acts 14, toward the end of Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch and they were reporting to the church there on their just completed missionary journey and everything was going well. And then certain from Judea showed up and began teaching and insisting that unless the Gentile Christians were circumcised, they couldn't be saved. Paul and Barnabas strongly disagreed and it created some turmoil in the church. The church decided to send Paul and Barnabas and certain others to the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So in Acts 15, in verse 6, it says that the apostles and elders gathered to consider the matter. And it appears from verse 12, it speaks of a multitude. It appears that the whole church was together. (coughs) And then there was speaking and listening that followed. And when there had been much dispute, it uses the word dispute. I want to take that as, as a disagreement uh, that opposing opinions were being expressed. I I don't think we have to take that as uh angry shouting or arguing, but they looked at the scriptures. They listened to the reports about Gentiles coming to the Lord. What would be very interesting would be to know just how that discussion time was moderated. Was it orderly? Or did people get excited and talk out of turn at times? Was it a little rowdy and boisterous sometimes? Um, I don't know, but I imagine that I think that personalities and just the cultural adequate of that time for such discussion probably entered in there. And then the people were thinking about what they heard. They were listening and they were thinking, processing what they heard. And it doesn't say how many prayers were offered throughout the discussion. It doesn't say how long that meeting was. Maybe they met several times. <clears throat> we don't know. But then there came a proposal given by James in verse 13. Men and brethren, listen to me. And he gave his proposal. And in verse 23, it says that the proposal was accepted. And then it pleased the, the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, the pleased there would specifically seem to be directed to in reference to the sending and the letter. But the impression that I have, the I think the, in my, in my mind, the implication is that the whole company was pleased with the decision as well. And how did how did they determine that? Was there a raise of hands? Doesn't say. Did they ask? All approve. Say a. Or was the congregation just nodding? Everybody was nodding their heads in agreement. Now, in the next chapter, in verse four, you know there've been a a. Uh, Mm. So Paul and Barnabas had gone back to to, uh, Antioch and they shared the letter, which very much blessed and encouraged the people there in Antioch. And then there was that little disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas um, left and went on a journey themselves. And it says in verse 4, That as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So we're not sure of all of the decision making details, but it would seem clear that the church was present, the church was engaged and involved in, in numerous ways, how all we don't know, that there was high interest, there was high concern. I'm sure there were many prayers by many people. The Anabaptists have strongly valued the priesthood of believers, that every Christian has direct access to God, Every Christian can pray. Every Christian can reach God through prayer. Every Christian can read the word, should read the word, and God's spirit is in his heart and can speak to him. So believers have insights from the scripture. They have wisdom from experience. All that can be helpful in bringing a question, an issue, to a good conclusion. Now I haven't done an analysis of this, but the epistles to the churches were written to the whole church. And direction was given to the whole church. Some of the epistles don't mention any leader or elder by either name or position. And The church together was intended to process the teaching of this word from God and discern the direction to be taken, the practical questions that needed to be answered from these letters or from any of God's word. Seeking input, a brotherhood gathered. So in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That you may approve the things that are excellent, I'm sorry. Your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And I think we help each other with discernment that we may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, As we have said at uh, different points in the past year, in men's meetings, members meetings, I believe that we as leaders can do more and do better at making opportunities for input from the brotherhood. And at the same time, uh, I believe that leadership has the scriptural responsibility to guide and guard a congregation. Not all decisions are of equal weight. A gym floor is an interesting discussion, and it's an important one because we have to reach a decision, Um, but it's not on the same level as the Bethel Chapel question, for example, or a point of doctrine even more serious. In all of those discussions, there needs to be, the spirit needs to be in control as we talk and listen, express our opinions, and as we decide together. Sometimes an issue will be brought to the church for input and discussion and a decision without much or any input from leadership. Sometimes an issue will be brought for input and discussion and then the ministry will confer and bring back a proposal for the Brotherhood's further feedback. Maybe do a second round or a third. Sometimes an issue is important enough that after discussion, the ministry will present a strong position with their reasons for it. To the church. But everyone filling their roles, ministers filling their role and growing in what a Christian leader, a good shepherd, leader, servant leader should be. And all of us together growing in Christ in love for Christ in love for God and for his ways and love for one another and working toward as we work through things to work for the goal of what does Jesus want what does the lord of the church want and to desire to reach a conclusion that is good, seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us, that God could bless. We've talked about brotherhood, meeting together, where the Spirit directs our speaking and our listening and our thinking and the proposals that are offered and guides us in the decisions that are made. And then there is that last point about submission too. And that last point is as important as any of the others. And I've often thought about those converted Pharisees at... uh, Jerusalem at that conference who so fervently believed that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. How did they feel after that decision? After that letter was written that said, no, circumcision isn't necessary. Were they deflated? Were they upset? Did they go off sulking? It doesn't tell us at all that they did. My feeling, my hope is that they submitted, that they adjusted their thinking and they accepted it and that they were then a part of that great group that identified with it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. (coughs) This um, message hasn't answered every question. I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure I even know all the questions. Wednesday evening we are uh, scheduled to have a discussion time on this subject. There are other things that could be talked about along uh, with what we've spoken to this evening, some practical things like committees, the purpose and function of committees, and what autonomy and authority do committees have, and what kind of questions should be brought to the whole congregation, and what should get decided in committee or left to an individual assign the responsibility. That's something we could talk about. I've wondered already, Did uh, would Apostle Paul have handled a church decision differently in carnal Corinth than he would have in Berea or Jerusalem where the disciples seemed more mature? And then uh, on heavy extra important issues, that shape the direction of a congregation. Some congregations have a provision that only members over a certain age and in good standing would have a voice. And the reasoning is that they would want the wisest, the most mature people making such decisions, not inexperienced uh, children, no disrespect, at all, but should the voice of the youngest and least mature have as much weight as a mature Christian? That's a question that some churches have addressed in the way I just described there. And there would be others. <clears throat> That's where I will close this evening. And I will turn the time over both sides.